Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on moviehousememories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from lunchtimemoviereview.com, and we are the children of the 80s. to another edition of Lunchtime Movie Review, the podcast where we look back at our childhood favorites to see if they stand the test of time. I'm Chris. G'day, I'm Shane. And for this episode, Shane, we have a new child of the 80s joining us. Chad, Hello, how's it going? Everybody. I'm doing well. Thank you for letting me be a part of this wonderful podcast. Well, it's great to have you on here. Chad is one of uh, our fans from the show, and we... Uh, Heard from him so often, we decided to see if he would be interested in joining us, and here he is. I'm no, I'm no, I'm no longer the new kid on the block. No, uh, you're not. I feel much <laughs> like Mitch, like I've been recruited, you know? You haven't. <laughs> Neither Shane nor I can uh, get this laser working, so if you don't have it by the end of the podcast, we're, you don't get the job, I guess. <laughs> we're giving it to Kent. All right. Okay, well, I got the popcorn ready from my end. <laughs> Great. And if you haven't guessed already, this week we are reviewing 1985's Real Genius, starring Val Kilmer, Gabriel Jarrett, and the guy whose name I always get his last name wrong, William Atherton. One of uh, my favorite asshole characters from the 80s, along with uh, Ferris Bueller. Jeffrey what is Jones. Name? Jeffrey Jones, thank you. Those two really stand out as the, uh, the biggest uh, jerks of the 80s. I had a third one I wanted to throw in there with Paul Gleason. He was another one who always seemed to be a jerk in all these movies. Yeah. Did like uh, Die Hard and Breakfast Club and all that. Mm-hmm. He's good. He was he was always popping up in great support roles. I think he passed away a few years ago, too, if I remember correctly. That yeah, he cool. did. Uh, but before we get too far into this, uh, I have a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Fuzzy Bunny Slippers. Are you a college kid on the go, but your pesky shoes are slowing you down? Keep up on the latest of everything with a pair of our patented Fuzzy Bunny Slippers. Our collection is unparalleled with choices ranging from slippers, booties, sandals, and more. Our Fuzzy Bunny Slippers will go with any outfit for every occasion. So don't let your feet stop you from making the CIA's latest killing machine. Buy your Fuzzy Bunny Slippers today. No real bunnies were harmed making these slippers. Peter approved them so you don't have to. <laughs> really nice. And if I haven't been talking enough as it is, I've got our summary this time too. <laughs> In a shadowy room at an unnamed location, a group of men from the CIA watch an episode of ALF and demand that the United States be protected from a furry invasion. They demand a weapon that will shoot a laser from outer space and zap the Melmac out of you. Similar to Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative, but with a better name. They call it Project Crossbow. Something this secret and dangerous can only be entrusted to a group of teenage college students, and Professor Jerry Hathaway of Pacific Technical University is the man to lead that team. He recruits 15-year-old Mitch to spark some life into the gang when his project hits a power snag. They can't generate the 1.21 gigawatts of electricity to help Marty get back to 1985. Uh, actually, that's, that's the wrong film. They can't generate a laser with 5 megawatts of power, and it now needs to be ready by mid-May or Jerry will lose his house. Of course, the kids are up for the task, but they don't realize the sinister nature of the project. They're smart, but they're not that smart. Mitch rooms with the project leader, Chris Knight. Chris has become something of a slacker during his stay at PTU, 
and studying comes after snubbing student beauticians and wacky hijinks. To make things worse for Mitch, the kiss-ass Kent and his merry minions are looking to sabotage Mitch and Chris to make Kent look better so he can get the job that Chris has been promised after graduation. It's not all doom and gloom for little Mitchie. He gets a hyperkinetic hard-on for Jordan, the 19-year-old girl with the metabolism of a cocaine addict. This girl never sleeps, except when she sleeps with 15-year-old Mitch. <laughs> Boys can't be raped, by the way. It's only the other way around. All of this happens under the watchful eye of Uncle Rico Hollifeld, who lives in Mitch's closet. You see, Hollifeld used to be the smartest person on campus back in the 70s, but cracked from the pressure when he discovered that his inventions were being used to kill people. Chris warns Mitch that he will end up the same way if he doesn't lighten up and have some fun. Thus, the 19-year-old Poonanny. But truth be known, I would have gone for the even older Sherry, who has a thing for banging the smartest men in the world. <laughs> they don't have to be legal. They just have to be old enough. Eventually, Chris and Mitch do figure out the laser power issue. But on the day of finals, Kent sabotages the optics and the laser destroys itself when Chris does one last test by himself. As he mopes back to his room, he comes across Kent, who gives him his condolences on the meltdown, even though Chris hasn't told a person about it. As Chris sulks on the dorm floor, he gets a brilliant idea from his liquid nitrogen that he keeps in the freezer to make coins for the coffee machine. He then runs off to find Mitch. They quickly make an even more powerful laser with Chris's idea that has 6 megawatts of power. Hathaway gets his laser, Knight gets his job as he was promised, and Kent gets screwed. Happy ending, right? Well, not exactly. As the group celebrates at the bar, filled with the, your cliched 80s fighting women. I've yes. never been in a bar where I've seen women fighting like that, by the way. <laughs> nope. Hollyfeld spoils their fun. He believes the only thing a high-powered laser is good for is a weapon. And not only that, Jerry knew that was its purpose all along. Chris realizes that Hollyfeld is right, and he has been a fool all along. What should they do to fix the problem? Disguise themselves as government workers, sneak into a military base, reprogram the laser to misfire, and destroy itself? All while giving the local kids a big popcorn party back at Jerry's house? Too far-fetched? Nope, not for these whiz kids, because they sneak into a military base, disguised as government workers, reprogram the laser to misfire into Jerry's house, where it cooks tons of popcorn before destroying itself. The film ends with the group watching the neighborhood children playing in the popcorn, pouring out of Jerry's house. Holyfield pulls up in a Winnebago with that whore Sherry and is 31.8% of the winnings from the Frito-Lay contest he entered over a million and a half times. <laughs> they drive off into the sunset as Tears for Fears, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, plays in the background. That, my friends, is a Hollywood ending. Um, this film came out in... Uh, 1985. Uh, Shane, what more can you tell us about it? Yeah, what a year that was. Uh, look, my research has got conflicting dates of the actual release date. I've got August 7th or August 9th, and what I'm thinking is maybe they pushed it a couple of days forward to August the 7th because it was released the same week as my science project. So maybe they thought that was going to be a problem. Uh, it was also released the same week as Pee-wee's Big Adventures, Summer Rental, and a British movie, which I really like, called Dance with a Stranger. Yeah. And Down Under in Australia, we didn't see it until the 8th of May, 1986. So, uh, yeah, it's not like now where movies were like released simultaneously. We had to wait a few months. Uh, the cost to make the movie, I couldn't find the production budget anywhere. It was just unavailable, so I can't tell you what that was. But the box office gross for the U.S. was $12,952,019, which isn't bad, because I don't think it would have cost a lot to make. No, it looked uh, pretty low budget to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they would have probably put a bit of money into the soundtrack, because I'll get onto that later, but I actually really enjoyed the soundtrack itself. Uh, it was nominated for four awards, All Up, which surprised me, but uh, it was nominated for two Young Artist Awards, one for Gabriel Jared, who plays Mitch, as exceptional uh, performance by a young actor, and it was also nominated for a Young Artist Award for Best Family Motion Picture Comedy or Musical. Being a family movie is a little bit debatable, uh, but it actually won both of those, Gabriel and for Best Film. It was also nominated for 
nominated for two awards at the Paris Film Festival, so they must have loved, liked it over there as well. Uh, for Best Actor, again, Gabriel Jarrett as Mitch, and the Grand Prix Award for Best Director, uh, Martha Coolidge. Wow. So, yeah, I mean... I guess that, it could kind of be a family film, though. I mean, other than Penis Stretcher, um, was there any... I don't think there's any bad language in this that I can remember. Not really. I mean, a few small curses, but nothing, no F words that I know of. No, uh, there was no um, F words, but I just thought there was a fair bit of sexual innuendo uh, throughout. And those that beat, that pool party was fantastic as well. <laughs> yeah, uh, you, had, you had the beautician yep. who ate too many hamburgers and her breasts were too large, <laughs> yeah. but hey, it happens. Was she 80s hot? Oh yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah, very much so. Uh, and uh, Rotten Tomatoes, a lot of people go on that these days, and it has a 75% uh, on the tomato meter with an average rating of 6.6 .6 out of 10, and the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes for Real Genius is 83%. So it's obviously a fan favorite, and I concur with that. Uh, over the years, it's become a bit of a cult movie. It was released in 990 cinemas in the US when it was released as well. That's not bad for a movie like this. Mm -mm. No, um, I, I don't think I saw it in the theater, though. Um, Chad, did you? No, I did not. I'm, I'm one of those who I don't ever even remember this thing being advertised. I don't remember ever seeing a trailer as a kid or anything. I remember seeing Val Kilmer in Top Secret in the theaters. And then I think the next time I saw him was in Top Gun. But... I did not know this movie even existed until it got on the HBO loop uh, probably the next year. And I'm like seeing Val Kilmer on TV and I'm, where did this movie come from? I didn't even know it existed. Yeah, well, he did. Um, he did this in between the two that you mentioned, Top Secret and Top Gun. And I think his comic timing is on point through this. And I think that has a lot to do with his role in Top Gun. He just brought it to this as well. He's a little bit like a Ferris Bueller type character, I thought. Yeah, I agree with you completely. He, uh, his timing in this movie is absolutely perfect. I mean, this is, they talk about how writers and actors can sometimes be in sync and the writers and he knew how to play off each other on this one. And he, I don't think, Val Kilmer missed a beat at all in this movie. No, not at all. And he's not known, even in his later work, to do a lot of comedies, although Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is mm. un underrated and very funny. I think he also played off of William Atherton quite well. as well. Also, he's a very good straight guy. Yeah, there was just there was lots of little details. Even when he was, they were sitting and talking and the expressions on his face when he was talking to William Atherton, um, it was all comically in time and very funny. Yeah, and I was just one of those that, you know, once again, I stop and think about other movies he did. Even as Doc Holliday in um, Tombstone, granted, he that wasn't a comedy at all, but how he was so deadpan about some of the funny lines that are memorable quotes, I should say, that people have probably restated a hundred million times over and over again. Uh, you can just tell that that's how good of an actor he really is if he's into the material. Definitely. Uh, that's one of his greatest roles ever in Tombstone as White Earp. Amazing. He did do other comedies uh, like MacGruber and a film in the early 90s with Kim Basinger called The Real McCoy. I remember that. He played a yes. bumbling, bumbling bank robber. But yeah, he's good at comedy, but just doesn't do much of it. Yeah, because like I said, I saw him in, in the theater in Top Secret, and I just, I thought this dude was going to be a superstar. I mean, I was probably 10 years old at the time. But I thought he was just going to be something amazing for in comedy for years and years to come because he had the perfect timing and the perfect delivery and everything he did in that movie. And to me, it carried over to real genius to a much higher level. Yeah, no, he was, um, I mean, I liked a lot of aspects of real genius, but Val Kilmer really took the lead and made this role his own. To me, this was kind of played off as their version of war games in some way where it's young people who's responsible for causing a lot of trouble within the government and outsmarting them too. And so I kind of compare him to Matthew Broderick in many ways. And it, it's funny that you, um, I think it was Chad that just said that 
It was, or was it you, Shane, that said he was like a um, Ferris Bueller? Ferris Bueller, yeah. And you know, he, he and and Matthew Broderick both have a pretty good, I don't know, boyish sense of humor, playful sense of humor. But I think actually Val Kilmer does it a little bit better in many ways than Matthew Broderick did it in Ferris Bueller. Yeah, the, there is a difference that he, not once that I can remember that Val Kilmer spoke directly to the audience either. Mm-hmm. So he, he didn't break the third wall where Ferris was, that was part of his uh, repertoire. But no, um, I agree totally what you say, Chris. Uh, Val really did bring that presence with him. Yeah, like the, what I'm thinking of is when they had the fake IDs and he's talking about <laughs> oh, how bad yeah. they are. He's like, yes. mine looks like Mitch and his looks like mine. These are <laughs> <Yeah>. horrible. <laughs> Oh, there were some real good zingers, one-liners in this. Mm-hmm. Too many. Like I totally forgot a lot of them because I hadn't seen it until um, re-watching it again for this podcast. I hadn't seen it for years, and it brought back uh, a lot of laughs. I cracked up right through it. Yeah, that's, I agree. This movie is full of one-liners and zingers and everything. And I mean, Val, like I said earlier, he is so spot-on with everything and his timing and his facial expressions and when to deliver them. And I mean... The writing helped him out so much, but yeah, he just hits it out of the ballpark. Yep. And there's still quotes that people know to this very day, and I hear people say every once in a while, or I'll say myself, and they are just wonderful. I I used to say all the time, you'll rue the day. (laughs) It's just so nerdy, it made me laugh. I just remember this summer being at a ballpark and having a conversation, and we're talking about somebody, and... I said, well, this person said so, so, and so, and I go, who talks like that? And that was one of the things that they were making fun of Ken about mm-hmm. and something he said. They're like, who talks like that? So, yeah, I mean, I'm still one of those. I'll quote this thing a million times over. Yeah, I, I totally forgot Deborah Foreman in this movie. Ah. She She's gorgeous, 80s gorgeous, and... Yep. Uh, um, obviously, everyone knows her from My Chauffeur and Valley Girl, among other movies, April Fool's Day. But when she opened the door, I totally forgot she was in this and uh, just because her name wasn't at the beginning credits. Mm-hmm. And then that obviously that line that she quotes to Val <laughs> and her, their little conversation, uh, their exchange was oh, priceless. Loved it. And then yep. followed up later when he when uh, Val barges in to say he's got <laughs> yes. the. The, the power that uh, Jerry needs, and he's like, uh, what do you say, bang away later or something? Or hammer uh, away later. Yeah. Yeah, because the original line was, can you hammer a six-inch spike through a board with your penis? And then uh, they smile, and she says a girl's got to have her standards. Yep. Jerry couldn't bang with his penis. No. Yeah, that's, I'm still trying to figure out how Jerry got her, but uh, that's a different uh, story. So. Well, you know, there was kind of a, a theme that uh, these women – just kind of liked these older intelligent men and had sex with them just for the story. So I was wondering maybe it, if he was. No, and I agree with you on that. Now here's a part of the movie. I didn't really put two and two together until I was w- watching it for this podcast was the lady who worked for Patty D uh, Branville who that played had, Sherry, that whore yes, Sherry. Exactly. Yeah. Patty D Branville who played Sherry Nugel. I never put it all together that she was the lady at the interview that Chris went to at the beginning of the movie and yes. was, I caught that she was the girl who tried to have sex with Mitch and then later fell in love with Laszlo. But I never knew that she was the lady at the beginning of the movie, just trying to score with all the smartest men in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think it was implied that, um, that Chris was number eight. Uh, Mitch yes. would have been number yes. nine, and then Laszlo was number ten, so she had banged the top ten minds. And she apparently killed number seven while having sex with him, if that was indeed implied, too. See, I don't think it's a family movie. <laughs> <laughs> there was just little things like that, and uh, when I was doing the research, uh, nominated for Best Family Motion Picture, Comedy, or Musical in 1986, I thought, nah. I, I couldn't imagine this winning, winning a family movie award, although, like I said earlier, it's not the dirtiest thing I've ever seen in my life. But yeah. Oh, no, of course. And they got away with a lot more in, in the 80s. Uh, a couple of years earlier, when Risky Business came out, that Tom Cruise film and Rebecca De Mornay, they got away with so much in that. And that was only a, a – well, it was M-rated in Australia. I think it was PG-13. 
in the U.S. And I once read an article that compared this to Weird Science, and which was uh, came out about the same time, and they were saying, okay, which is the better nerd movie and all that. But I was trying to think, I always thought Weird Science was more raunchy and definitely not family-oriented than this one was. Oh. So, I mean, yeah, there's a lot more movies at that point in time that you definitely wouldn't want to take your kids to see. And this one is more wholesome, if you will. Yeah, no one got turned into a pile of shit in this one. Exactly. That's <laughs> <laughs> like um, science-themed movies of the 80s kind of had their own subculture because... Uh, it was Weird Science was only released a week earlier than this. And then, as oh. I said, my, my science project was released in the same week. And then a month earlier, Back to the Future came out. Uh, so that's kind of science linked. And um, a month later, there was a movie called Creator that with Peter O'Toole, who's mm -hmm. a professor who brings his uh, dead wife back to life through science. So there was all this subculture of... Uh... And Revenge of the Nerds was 1984, if I remember correctly. Correct. Yes. Yes, so it's uh, it, it was like this. Um, we'll call it psychom. Mm -hmm. These psychoms, these subculture, science-related comedies were around. But Weird Science, I think, had the most uh, box office, but only by a little bit. And also on this one, if I remember reading correctly, that they used a lot of real science principles in in this film. They hired some real professors as consultants for the formulas and stuff, but obviously didn't get too into it as they didn't want anybody building their own lasers to shoot people out of the sky. <laughs> I think, nice. uh, yeah, it was a bit of trick photography there with those lasers, but they look good, I thought. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, that the special effects in this movie were, even by today's standards, very good. It, none of it really looked cheesy or outdated in a big way. Um, Pretty much just the beginning with the space shuttle. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, you know, the laser that they used to kill the guy at the beginning of the movie, if you will, um, and everything else they did, I thought looked really, really nice. Even the stuff inside the lab looked very realistic. Yeah, exactly. I agree. And um, the cinematography in general uh, was pretty impressive. And like I said, I couldn't find the production budget anywhere. But uh, I don't think it would have cost much, but they made do with what they had and it came across really well done yeah there's a very nice cinematography i there's one shot in this movie that i still love is when uh mitch's it's one of the first uh musical montages they have and mitch is going through a courtyard and he books or something get knocked down and laszlo's helping him pick him up and just how the sunlight they do that in the background it was just a beautiful shot i mean it's a throwaway shot in the grand scheme of things but they shot this movie very, very well. I think when you think of 80s montages, this is <laughs> this is the film that really kind of sticks out in my mind for the same reason you're talking about um, with, with the car and all that. And even when they're all studying and the one mm -hmm. guy flips out screaming. <laughs> and yeah, there there's a lot of great 80s montages in it. Yes, I agree very much. Yeah, I mean, every 10 to 15 minutes, there was a musical interlude. Uh, I liked when he was, uh, when Mitch was in the lecture room. And when it, you saw it the first time, you saw like a, a boombox near him. And I thought, oh, okay. And then the next shot, there was more boomboxes. And he was the only one there and all these tape recorders. And then the next shot, they had like a two-track stereo as the teacher. And he was the only student in the room. I thought that, that was pretty funny being surrounded by boomboxes recording. Yeah, there's a level of absurdity that, that just works for this film. Oh, lots. Lots of it. And the right from the start, from that I Love Toxic Waste t-shirt, which is a classic now, uh, it, it kicks off there and it doesn't doesn't let up. There's there's things happening through this in the background and, right, you know, you got to listen carefully to get the most out of this film. More I than mean, one viewing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even when, it, towards the end of the movie, when they're getting ready to test the laser in the jet plane, you can tell that the target is technically the same motorcade that Kennedy was assassinated in. So if you didn't sort of know how the cars were lined up and all that from the Kennedy assassination, you wouldn't know what their target is in a grand scheme of things. They're killing government <laughs> leaders. Mm-hmm. Definitely. You know, we talk about this is a great 80s movie, and you sit there and you watch it. There's... 
a number of people who kept showing up in this movie that were in tons and tons of 80s movie like Ed Lauder who played the uh I think it was General Decker who was the main oh, bad yes. guy if you will for the government I mean he was in it the main bad guy in the movie the Karate Kid 2 shows up as one of the college students that Mitch is in class with and I think lives in the dorm with and and even like you said earlier Deborah Foreman showing up and uh Robert Prescott who played Kent these are all people who were all over 80s movies and I found that just to be fascinating as well I'll never forget Robert Prescott in Bachelor Party but <laughs> 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 like, seriously that is the one he's one of the he, he's almost playing the same same role here but bachelor party with robert prescott was just fantastic and you know i also noticed there was an asian student fenton and i kept looking mm -hmm. at him thinking i recognize you he's the uh driver in better off dead who tries yes. to race race john cusack all the time yes the driver yeah so I, yes. I knew i knew him from somewhere but he's mm. in better off dead yes and he was the one i was mentioning if you see karate kid part two he played chosen oh, who of course. was the main bad guy who daniel has to fight at the end of the movie so he goes from being ass-kicking karate guy in one movie to uh a total nerd in this movie but Isn't he did funny? make the uh, great ice that uh evaporated <laughs> <laughs> oh that that's another great scene except yes. he had those he had those earmuffs on which were hilarious and then they disappeared later on i don't know whether he took them off or they fell off but they had them on one minute and they were gone the next that was a bit of bad editing i think mm -hmm. well when it started to turn didn't he put it around his neck or something oh, oh he might I have believe so. okay yeah uh, there's a list of goofs on imdb that i know that i'm pretty sure that they got that they have chris taking his shirt on and off while he's taking his final exam they have a whole bunch of goofs that oh, little okay. things like that you know that scene i i've always loved too where he writes down i ace this and uh gives him the <laughs> apple yes oh that's explodes. great it, it's one of my favorite uh scenes it's great and I, and i actually didn't expect it to explode because earlier on in the movie he got a big cherry Remember, and he was holding the cherry, and I thought, oh, it's just a, just you know, going to be a prop. But that was funny when it exploded in the in the garret in the bin. Um, do you want to talk about the guy living in the closet? Laszlo Hollifeld, yes. You know what? What's funny about Laszlo is, uh, I still remember the first time I saw Napoleon Dynamite, <laughs> and for the life of me, I could not remember why <laughs> Uncle Rico looks so damn familiar, and. I, I literally, I saw the whole film, couldn't figure it out, and I had to go Google it to realize that it, he was the same guy as in Real Genius. Oh, there you go. You just taught me something, Chris. I knew I recognized him too. Yep. <laughs> uh, I, I actually, I've got to say, I, I don't know if you both agree, but it was a little bit of an insin insignificant role. I mean, I know it, it supplied a little bit of comedy and intrigue at the start, finding out where he lived, which was actually a nice little set where he went down and then across to where his little hideout was behind the wall. But um, until the end, you know, I just thought it was, he didn't really serve much of a purpose. Do you, do you agree? He was kind of a parallel for Mitch as, as to what could happen. But um, yeah, it wasn't a very strong role for him, but I don't really know how you would have made it a, a bigger part without uh, kind of killing the, the main story itself. Mm. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, is he's more like that uh, icon that Chris is trying to prevent Mitch from becoming. You don't want to become Laszlo because, yes, you have the brains, but you also have to have the fun and the passion behind it. Because if you're all science and no theory, and somebody tells you that your work is going to possibly kill somebody, this is what you're going to become as a guy who lives in the sewer tunnels. So, and then, ironically... Chris does the very thing that he was warning Mitch not to do. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And Mitch sort of started with no personality, and then it was ingrained into him, obviously, by Val Kilmer and his surrounds. And I, I've got to mention Jordan, uh, the actress Michelle Mayrink. I mean, she, for a uh, love interest, she is a, a very jittery type of character and not someone you'd think would be a typical 80s love interest. 
I will agree with you. She was, for all these years that I've watched this movie, she was always one of those uh, very cute girls in a lot of movies like Valley Girl and this movie. And I think she was also the main girlfriend in um, Revenge of the Nerds uh, for Anthony Edwards' character. So she was in a lot of movies in the 80s, and she's a very cute girl. But she always had this one thing about her that even watching it in high def, I still don't know if she had a thick mustache or if she had some kind of a shadow just above her top lip. That I think it was a mustache. <laughs> okay. I hope so, because it has bothered me. For I, I've noticed that, yeah. Uh, I was l- looking at her, but not as close as you guys. <laughs> I remember uh, her playing a girl called April in a movie called Nice Girls Don't Explode. It's not a very popular comedy, <laughs> but she's the lead in that and um, very funny. And you're right, uh, Revenge of the Nerds as well. She's popped up in a lot of things. Yeah, because I don't think she had a very long career, but she made a lot of notable movies very early in the 80s or mid-80s, I should say, and then sort of just vanished she's a very good girl next door i think Mm -hmm. that's a good way of putting it with hair you're gonna gonna definitely make me want to uh check it out now to see if she really does have a mustache (laughs) (laughs) well she's got a weird mouth going on that's what i've always noticed but i I agree that there's something going on up there (laughs) i did like uh, jordan's character though i she's she wasn't uh she wasn't like uh, the, like say, the girl next door, yes, but she wasn't too brain, or she, yeah, she actually was too brainy, but yet she had a fun, fun spirit about her that made the movie interesting. You made, made you laugh, especially the scene where uh, Mitch is trying to pee and she's standing right over the top of him, uh, talking at a million miles a minute. And, and she knitted him a full sweater in a how, how much amount of time? I think overnight. Uh, yeah. Overnight. <laughs> Because she said she was very good with her hands <laughs> and couldn't sleep. Well, what was it? She said her roommate, uh, she drove her roommate crazy and her roommate got taken away by the, uh, to, and taken to an insane asylum or something like that. I found yeah. that hilarious. And her character definitely backed that up. I could see that happening. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, she came around. She had some, and definitely, she had in, nice feelings for Mitch. And when he came in to tell her that he hadn't slept with that other woman, uh, she was g- genuine and stoked. So I'm glad that that they ended up together. Yeah, because when he said that he didn't want to take her home to meet his parents, she's like, "Are you ashamed of me?" He's yeah. like, "No, them." I mean, that was a very realistic moment to me. Yeah, and it's little things like that in the 80s where they did it really well, those mm-hmm. teenage teenage romances, and that's a great example. And it wasn't a John Hughes film set in Chicago. It didn't have to be. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. But Martha Coolidge, you know, she, she's got a good track record working with um, young actors, so I'm not surprised that she got the best out of them, out of her cast. Yeah, yeah, because that was the thing. Uh, the girl who played Jordan plus Deborah Foreman were both in Valley Girl and then show up again in this movie. That Martha directed both of these, and I found that to be kind of interesting. Did was Deborah's uh, role just a throwaway part that Martha gave to her, or did she really try to be a part of this movie? Found that interesting. Uh, I'm not sure, but you know, there's obviously the link there. Maybe she just needed to have a, an appearance by her, you know, a small role and did her a favor. And around the same time, Columbia Pictures, who also made uh, Real Genius, were doing My Chauffeur, which, ah. which, you know, Deborah Foreman was the lead role in. So, you know, she might have been on set nearby. Martha sure, Coolidge sure. says, hey, come on, set for the day. Yes. I see. Sam Flash Jones was in that My Chauffeur movie, too, if I remember correctly. He was. That's <laughs> And he run a very funny movie. Yes, I remember watching that a couple times in the 80s, but I don't think I've seen it since. I'll have to catch up on that one. Yeah, I don't think I could tell you the last time I saw that film. Uh, Another thing, Martha Coolidge is still directing, but mostly TV. And when I was checking out uh, the last sort of big movie she did was in 2006, Material Girls, with Hmm. Hillary Hillary and Haley Duff. Obviously, they they were big at the time, but... Over, over in uh, down under, the movie wasn't called Material Girls. It was called Duff and Duffer. <laughs> wow. No, I'm only joking. I made I was that. Gonna up. Say. <laughs> I was gonna say. 
<laughs> That's my poor attempt at Australian humor. No, it works. It works, trust me. No, and another thing I get in doing my research I found fascinating was the I talked about the writers earlier on. The people who wrote for this movie have a great yes. history of uh movies that they've been part of, like uh Neil Israel and Pat Prof being part of Police Academy and um, Neil Israel being part of Bachelor Party, uh, yes. Roth being part of the Naked Gun movies, and then uh, PJ, uh, excuse me for not getting the name right, Tora Vecchi uh, being part of Back to School and Caddyshack 2, which wasn't a great movie, but had its moments. And then also coming up and doing some of the WKRP in Cincinnati um, TV shows. So the writers definitely had a great track record behind them and getting this movie set up yes and let's not forget moving violations neil israel ah. had something to do with that and that's hilarious yes you're correct and it's good that they didn't go over the overboard with the comedy then because some of those the the comedy styles probably wouldn't have fit when, with this one's subtle humor yeah because i read an article and i'll you have to give me a minute to find it but I read one where I think Israel and Prof were the two originators of the story. And then Martha came on board uh, due to Brian Grazer's uh, at his request. And then she ended up bringing in PJ Torvecki or Torakvi. I can never pronounce that name right. That's and, okay. I butcher all sorts of names. <laughs> <laughs> but PJ was the one who I guess. Uh, did the final screenplay and brought in the main zingers and the main punch for all of Chris's lines. And then also brought in the Jordan character to help get a little bit of, of a love interest and a little bit of female heart into the movie. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think um, with the comedy writing, you can tell that, as I said earlier, Val Kilmer coming off top secret, that's how he sort of honed his comic timing and it's all on point. But there are times where he sort of has that role, the Nick Rivers kind of humor going, and then he, re he restrains himself. He doesn't quite go over the top. So, mm. yeah, I, I think that that works because if it had gone a little bit too slapstick, it may have ruined the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I guess in the earlier drafts of the movie, they were trying to go for some more low-brow, uh, frat party-type comedy. And so they brought in the latter writer to try to make it more highbrow and make it look like all these people truly were geniuses and <laughs> make it smart comedy. Yeah, no, I like the... Uh, there was a couple of uh, Albert Einstein references and the posters on the wall and... The theories on the uh, blackboards and that, that that was just right through it, and I, I liked all that. It was good. One of the, the things that I always liked, and uh, it always kills me, is the, the water jug in their room with the goldfish in it that he drinks. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and he just casually takes a drink out of it, and later on in the film he fills it up too or puts some more water in it. I think yeah, he's feeding I, the fish. Yes, exactly. Point. That's what I was going to say. He's feeding the fish. Yeah, very funny. Those little touches really make it. And uh, we were talking about William Atherton earlier. Um, that and you know those '80s assholes who you've seen in a few movies. I think uh, we mentioned Sam or yeah, Sam Jones, not Sam Jones, Jeffrey Once Jones, again, Jeffrey Jones. Thank you, and Paul Gleason. But um, yeah, William Atherton is to me one of the great actors <laughs> ever because of how he presents himself as an asshole. <laughs> for the lack of a better phrase. Um, if you ever get to see the movie The Class of 44, which was a sequel to The uh, Summer of 44, which were made, I think, in the 70s, um, he plays a college uh, dorm president, or not dorm, a fraternity president. And he has the same personality, the same cadence, the same facial expressions in that movie that he has in Real Genius. <laughs> but it's... It's just perfect. He's like, he delivers everything so well that you just believe he's the most rotten, vile asshole on the face of the earth. And he does that in some of my favorite 80s movies, Die Hard and mm -hmm. Ghostbusters. 
Oh, well, his character, Walter Peck, in Ghostbusters is one of the greats. <laughs> yeah. The I man would... with no dick. Uh, he didn't. Uh, he appeared in Die Hard 2, but he never got to appear in Ghostbusters 2, which, uh, is, you know, I guess the fans would have liked to have seen him again. Yeah, and he's another one. I think his, his career has gone on and on with TV movies and TV shows. I can remember... The last thing I really remember seeing him in was a TV movie called Buried Alive with uh, Jennifer Jason Lee and Tim Matheson, where they conspire to kill off uh, Tim Matheson and they bury him alive. And again, uh, William Matheson was just the most vile, evil human being on the face of the earth in that movie and pulled it <laughs> off very, very well. well. William Matheson is the eternal jerk. Definitely yeah. of the eighties, and I remember him in Biodome. He also has mm. like he's a science teacher in that in Biodome, a, a Paulie Shaw so-called comedy. But it has an Australian connection because Kylie Minogue was also in it, and uh, she's a very uh, national treasure around here. Her bottom is a national treasure everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, she is. Yeah, you mentioned Kylie Minogue, and everyone just pops up, pops up around here because they all like her. And uh, yeah, you can't say anything bad about Miss Minogue or her sister Danny. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Biodome. <laughs> I remember William Atherton. Uh, he played basically the, the same role again in, in a smaller scale, but Biodome. Uh, a lot of science-related jokes in that too. Well, I have to ask you guys, uh, what would be your favorite scene in this movie? Because, like we said earlier, there are so many that are just great, and there's so many great quotes in them. Uh, what would you guys pick as your favorite? Uh, look, I love the popcorn scene. I just love it how it finishes with this the song and, and then the, the tracking shot, how it goes up. But if I wasn't already in, enjoy, enjoying this movie, the minute Deborah Foreman opens that door and there's that exchange with her and Val Kilmer, that, that 90 second two minute scene made it for me. Uh, amongst all the other little details and the funny things that were going on, uh, Deborah Foreman's appearance for me. I think for me, it's when, uh, when uh, Mitch and Chris were talking about Laszlo and, you know, uh, what was it where he, he's like, um, where he, they're talking about the closet. He's like, but that's not why I go in there or no, <laughs> yeah. what do he say? Um, well, at oh, first he goes, Oh, have you seen that guy in the closet? And go, oh, and he, you know, he goes, you know, there's a guy in the closet and he, uh, Val Kilmer says something. You've seen him too. Yeah. It, 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 very funny. Yeah. It, it's just his nonchalant way of, of, uh, of just dealing with it or life in general, really. But I think it, it's a great little scene between just the two of them and, uh, you know, no special effects, no nothing, just two guys goofing around. And I, it looks like everybody in this film generally had a lot of fun filming this, this movie. Yeah. I can't disagree with you there. It's everybody just looks like they know, they know they're there to have fun. I think Martha Coolidge directed them to a, in a way where they were supposed to have fun and it, to make it look like a college film. And I think a lot of people still think of this as one of the quintessential college movies for that reason. Oh, yeah, and I think an honourable mention for one of my favourite parts is also the pool party with the inflatable sl slide and just that looked like a party I wanted to be at. That was very yeah. 80s. <laughs> yes, and that's, you, just, you two just nailed it on the head for me because the whole thing from uh, starting out in the lab um, where Mitch is working on the laser, Chris basically hands him the uh, container that has yogurt in it, but... Chris basically, and Mitch tastes it, but Chris basically doesn't tell him it's yogurt, and Mitch thinks he's <laughs> just eating something random from the lab. I mean, the whole sequence, they go from that to Chris goes, okay, let's get serious, and then Mitch hits the laser, and the laser turns out to be a sign on the, inviting everybody to come to the pool party. And then they go into the pool party, and what do you hit right away? You hit Don Henley. All, all they want to do is dance, which is a major 80s song and then like you said it's the inflatable rafts the inflatable slide the inside pool party that was like the perfect scene for me in this movie 
Exactly. And the, it was like a waterfall was coming off the stage. They were inside like a, a theatre. And it was just set up perfectly. And you're right about Don Henley's song. That's that's part of the soundtrack I like. There was obviously Brian Adams too had a decent yep. song on it. Uh, really, really does impress me, this movie, uh, when I rewatched it. I'm surprised yeah, he, more, more people don't talk about it. Yeah, and it's in you get back to that scene for a second. It was more... Um, the layers to it because then Kent comes in like the evil guy he is and sees it going on. He <laughs> runs off to Jerry, who's talking about the colon on his TV show. And then Jerry's like, okay, show me where they're at. And then he has to be the evil Dick who shuts down the party. It's, I don't know why the, just the whole sequence of how everything went down for that whole segment is and perfect. To me. I can't remember. Did they have the stereotypical, uh, the um the screeching of the record to get it yes to stop. they did yeah yes they did and then when they started the music back up they <laughs> dropped the record right where it stopped yes the exact spot it was well done <laughs> yeah that scene of the movie i mean everybody has great lines everybody has great parts from jordan trying to take the rebreather and go underwater to mitch going into the pool with her to Chris finding the girl who ate too many hamburgers and had big breasts. I mean, it, I don't know why that just seems like the perfect eighties scene to me. You can never go wrong with student petitions. I think. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) That scene was also another example of Jordan, um, having a soft heart, you know, when, Mm -hmm. uh, Mitch left, had to leave all of a sudden the look on her face was like, Oh no, he's gone. So it wasn't all about, um, She's like Crane. a golden retriever. Yeah. <laughs> the sad face. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You calling her a dog? No. Just <laughs> That's her, good. her upper lip. That's Just all. her upper lip. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, you guys are going to check this out now. <laughs> it's driven me nuts for about 30 years. So. Yeah, you know, one thing that did drive me a little bit nuts in this movie, bananas actually, is, and I know it's 80s fashion. But there were so many draped cardigans and sweaters over their shoulders. And then mm-hmm. they were walking around. And it was, I mean, I never did that in the 80s. Did you guys? No, that was a California thing, I think. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And okay. what was that thing that Kent was wearing, that faux turtleneck thing? Uh, it's not a dickie, is it? I don't know what it, the heck it is, but that yeah. cracks me up too. But doesn't the guy yeah. on The Big Bang Theory... Um, one of the guys I think still wears those to this day. Uh, well, that could be a nod to this film then. Yeah. Because it, it they... looked, it looked a bit like a woolen cummerbund that you wear to a wedding. <laughs> and, yep. and, uh, I think the big bang theory, not that I'm a religious watcher, but they may have had an, uh, a whole episode dedicated to real genius or oh, part wow. of one anyway. Well, shall we go around and see if this one stands a test of time? Although I think we uh, already know the answer to that. <laughs> uh, Chad, since this is your first podcast, I'll let you uh, say uh, your last words and if it stands a test of time. Uh, thank you very much. Yes, uh, this movie, Real Genius, is one of my favorite movies. And yes, it's still, you can tell it's an 80s movie just by looking at some of the technology in it and stuff like that, clothing, music. But it is a wonderful movie with a ton of great scenes, great quotes, zingers, one-liners, great characters who I still idolize and worship to this day. So I will definitely say anybody who watches it for the first time would love it to this day. Um, So I would say it does stand the test of time. I totally agree, and uh, on all what Chad just said, it is a movie that you can just watch it again and again, and stands the test of time right from the start. That TriStar logo was good to see again at the opening of the picture. Mm-hmm. You don't see that very often. Right. I, always, I think I should suggest, if you're watching it for the first or second time, crank it up, put the volume up, because you <laughs> might miss a quick joke, and it's... Uh, it's just one of the best written comedies of this era. So it definitely stands the test of time. I loved it. I will agree with you on that. It definitely stands the test of time. This is what I would consider a feel-good hit of the summer. Uh, this mm-hmm. could be where they got the phrase from because everything about it, it's not a challenging film. It's just go out, have a good time, spend 
I don't know how long this was, an hour and a half, two hours, and um, enjoy yourself. It, Although it has a little bit of risque humor, I, I think by today's standards, a lot of the family, I maybe not the younger kids, but most of the family could watch this one. And uh, yeah, it's got a high replay value, and I think everybody would like it. Uh, Chad, I'd like to thank you for coming on. I hope you had fun. Oh, it was a blast. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, we'll get you back on this soon. Uh, yeah, it was great having you on. Appreciate it very much. Uh, anytime you need me, I'll make myself available. Great. Sounds good. Well, that does it for this week's review of Real Genius. Thanks once again for listening to our little show. If you've had a good time, the fun doesn't have to stop here. You can follow us on Facebook at Lunchtime Movie Review or at Twitter at Lunchtime Movie on either Facebook or Twitter, you can keep up on our written film reviews, news on upcoming films and Blu-ray releases, information on upcoming podcasts on the MHM Podcast Network, including the number two review, the lunchtime movie review, movie house memories, male bonding, Sunday seconds with the Duke, and film house hustlers. Additionally, Shane A. is a contributor to cultradioagogo.com. You can follow him on Twitter at movie underscore analyst, where you can keep up on his film reviews and celebrity interviews. Also, you can follow Chad at this underscore is underscore CMM, not to be confused with this is a certain news network. Well, that does it for this episode of Lunchtime Movie Review. Until next time, I'm Chris. I'm Shane. And I'm Chad. We have to get out of here, and you are invited. This podcast is not endorsed by Sony Pictures Home Entertainment and is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Real Genius, all names and sounds of Real Genius characters, and any other Real Genius related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Sony Pictures Home Entertainment or the respective trademark and or copyright holders. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Movie House Memories, Lunchtime Movie Review, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment LLC, unless otherwise noted.